0: Well, before we uh, jump into God's Word this morning, uh, Ed Thompson, I'm going to put you on the spot here in just a second if you'll pray on our behalf. Um, I want you guys to uh, just uh, give some thought to, and, and I want to bring to your mind that uh, this week out in Oregon, we had Christians, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, who were martyred on American soil. And this is something that... Uh, not popular to talk about, but since Columbine shooting uh, way back when, it happened then too. And it seems to be something that is picking up speed and happening on a more frequent basis. And it's something that we should, as believers, feel confident that God has under control. But on the same hand, it should frighten us as to the direction that our country and our world is taking. And so on top of uh, brothers and sisters who are Americans dying for the cause of Christ. I want you to just think about the global stage for a minute as we go to the Lord in prayer and all of these things that are taking place. And I just want to, uh, you know, I don't go political on you, but I want you just to think about all of these countries that are rising to power and that are being more and more rebellious in the world. You have Russia, the former Soviet Union. You have Syria. You have Iran. You have China. You have these four major countries that are huge, by the way. It's legal in every single one of those countries to kill Christians. That's not a political statement. That's a fact. Christians die because of uh, bad people killing them on a regular basis in each of those countries. And with each of those countries rising to power, it's a very, very delicate situation to say the least. And so, Ed, I'm going to ask that you would uh, pray on our behalf that God would... um, don't even know what to pray for in these situations, but I'm putting it on your shoulders to uh ask the Lord to intervene on our behalf if you would, Ed. So if you'll lead us in prayer, after he prays, I'll I'll open God's word for us. Father, we are
1: thankful today, Lord, that we are numbered among the redeemed of Christ. Father, we're thankful that we serve one who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask for today. Father, we're thankful today that your word affirms to us that the effectual prayer of a righteous person availeth much. Father, we lift the needs of your people across this nation and world today, Lord, where when it seems that evil prevails, Father, help us to understand that you're still in control. Father, that you're still in charge. And Father, we don't understand why bad things happen to good people. But Father, we lift the need in accordance to your word. We lift that need Faithfully. Father, for you to meet the needs of Christians across this nation. Father, we pray a spiritual edge around your people. Protect us, we pray, Father. And we pray for justice to come to this nation. True justice, Lord, that only you can bring. Father, we pray for our church, our our community, our family, and our nation. Father, bless your people special way. Help us to arise and Father, that we would have a greater season than ever before, Father, to see this lost and dying nation turn to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Bless, Father, a special way we need to for to people as they cry today. Bless them the special way we keep you thanks. In the name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank
0: you, Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, if you'll take it and turn to the book of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 22. We've been cruising along right through Matthew. Um, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to walk you through a big review. But one of the things I want to remind you is out of Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21, at the very end, the chief priest and the Pharisees know exactly who Jesus is talking to with all of these parables that he's walking through. And he, and, excuse me, and they know that these parables are directed at them and they are not happy one bit about it. And so in chapter 21 verse 46, the last one, it says that when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. And so these leaders want to put their hands on Jesus and they want to get him out of the way and get rid of him, but they fear the people so they don't. And so Jesus in chapter 22, he picks up and it says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come again. He sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold. I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fattened livestock. All are butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their own way. One to his own farm, another to his busyness. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main highways and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests... He saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him, hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And so you read this story sometimes and you think, Man, this is a really neat story. This is a gracious king. He's invited people. They don't want to come. And so you realize that these are, these are not good friends of the king. And so the king goes and he tries to get them again. And the people come up with all these excuses why they can't come. And then he goes out and he says, listen, everything's ready. So he tells his servants, forget those guys. Go out to anybody that you can find and tell them to come in because everything is ready for the wedding feast. And so the king invariably has wedding clothes that are set out for everybody who's going to come. Because he's going to anybody. He's going to good and evil people. And these are people that are not well to do. And so the the normal thing to do here would be for the king to provide them all with garments to wear when they come to the party. And this isn't a normal thing these days. Normally when you throw a party, you don't provide clothes for everybody. But last, uh, in the summer, I went to a place at Ocracoke Island called the Berkeley Inn. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with Ocracoke, if you're familiar with the Berkeley Inn, but the same guy who owns the castle on Ocracoke Island, anybody familiar with what I'm talking about? You know, there's a castle on Ocracoke, it's this big house. Well, anyways, there was this really rich, wealthy guy and he built this castle and he built the castle. It's not a brick and mortar castle like you would think about in Ireland or Scotland somewhere. It's just a big house. And this guy was very wealthy and a little bit crazy. And so he had a horse that he enjoyed. And he built his castle so that the horse could come in and be an inside horse just like you have inside pets, some of you. And so when he built a staircase, he built it so that the horse could go upstairs and have free reign to any room in the house. And this wealthy man builds this place called the Berkeley. It was a hunting lodge. And so Ocracoke wasn't always... Uh, a, a tourist retreat. It was a hunting paradise, so to speak. And so this man builds the Berkeley Inn and he has two rooms, if you're his hunting guest, that you could stay in. You could stay in the Remington Room or the Winchester Room. You go, that's strange. All of you ladies are like, that's weird names to give them. But anyways, the guy had Top to bottom, Remington shotguns in one room. And top to bottom, Remington Winchester shotguns in the other room. And you stayed in that room. And when you got there uh, to hunt with him, you hunted with one of his shotguns. So he would take a shotgun off the wall, give it to you, and you would hunt with his gun. And at the end of the hunting trip, if he liked you, you'd keep the gun. If he didn't like you, put the gun back on the wall and maybe the next person he'll like. Your wives that would go with you to this hunting place... They would send him, I guess, their measurements before they came, and he would have out a beautifully laid dress over the bed for each of the women who came to visit the Berkeley Manor. And so the men would have shotguns to use and keep, and the women would have beautiful dresses. And so he provided them with everything that they needed while they were there, and he would throw a big party. And the women were expected to wear the dresses that he had made for them. And this wasn't that he was a tyrant and wanted to control what they did. He was just a very generous man, wanted to throw a very big party. How much more so here with this king? This king is throwing a huge wedding feast. And weddings are a big deal. Sometimes weddings took a week within this Jewish culture by the time they have all their parties and everything else going on. And so the kings invited people. And he sent out his slaves to call the people who had been inviting. So inevitably they had gotten a save the date postcard. They put it on their refrigerator. They knew exactly when the wedding was going to be. And now it was time for the wedding to be held. And the people... Or the man, the king, sends out his slaves and the people don't come who had been invited. And so the king, out of his generous long-suffering, he sends out different slaves. And he tells them, listen, tell my guest that the, all of the, the fattened calves have been slaughtered. All the preparations have been made. I've spent the money. I bought your plate. You RSVP'd. I bought your plate. It's paid for. You need to come and enjoy this wedding feast. And it says here, But they paid, this is verse 5, But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his busyness. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. And so the king was enraged, and he sent armies to destroy those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he tells his slaves, listen, If the people who the feast has been prepared for, if they won't come, you go out. The feast is ready. You go out and you get anybody who will come. And so they go out and they go into the highways and they go get anybody who's willing to come. And it says that they went out and they gathered those people, both good and evil. And they filled the wedding hall with guests. And so the the assumption here and what we know is that the king provided them clothes to wear. Come to the king's feast. Everybody's invited to come. You wear what's right when you come to the king's wedding feast, but somehow somebody gets in without wedding clothes. This is verse 11. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. He was without excuse when he was asked, why don't you, why aren't you wearing the proper wedding clothes? But the king said to his servants, and this always threw me off in this parable, bind him. Don't go get him any clothes, but bind him. Hand and foot, throw him into outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so what you need to know about this man is that this man was freely asked to come and he was provided with everything he wanted. But he didn't come the way that the king insisted that he come. And that was wearing the right clothes. Everything was provided for him by the king freely. It wasn't going to cost him anything, but he didn't do it. The man is arrogant, Price. Prideful, And he says, I'm going to do this my way, not the way the king wants me to do it. And you go, well, he's got the right to do that. No. When the king invites you to the wedding feast and he provides things for you, you come the way that the king tells you to come. And that's wearing the right garments. And brothers and sisters, I talk to people on a daily basis who claim to know God Who claim to be followers of Christ. They say, oh, I believe in God. And they say all of these things. But listen, they are people who are planning to come to the king's feast their own way. And this parable says that when the king invites you somewhere, you come following his orders or you don't come at all. You see, we live in a nation who wants to follow God, but wants to follow each one their own God and not God as he's been revealed to us in this book. I watched, uh, my wife made me watch this. Not really. We're driving home yesterday from somewhere and she says, Hey, look, Oprah's doing a new special. She was flipping through Facebook. Oprah is going to tell you how to be spiritual. That should scare you to death that Oprah is going to show millions of people in America how to be spiritual. And she's got a pastor who she really looks up to. His name's Rob Bell. You need to avoid him like the plague. He's going to tell you how to be spiritual. And then she's got these other people who are going to tell you how to be spiritual also. And each of these people disagree in how to be spiritual. But to each of them, it's okay because everywhere leads to the same place. And that is not true. Not every route of spirituality leads to the true king. There is one way to come to the king and that is God's way. And you do not get to come on your own terms. You come on the king's terms. Listen, coming to the wedding feast that the king has prepared is too good to be true. None of us deserve it. None of us are worthy. But he's laid out this lavish feast for us. He's laid out for us eternal life. And unless we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins, we cannot come. And so for someone to come to the king any way that they want and think that they're going to be in good shape, they're totally wrong. And the parable finishes up in verse 14 and says, For many are called, but few are chosen. And we'll spend more time talking about that particular passage on Wednesday night. But the call is for everybody. For whosoever will believe in the Son shall be saved out of the book of Romans. And so the call is broad. Anybody can be saved, but only a few are. In America, we have so many people who want to do things their way. And I want to encourage you that when you seek out to follow the Lord... I pray that you would be following the Lord that's found in the scriptures and not the Lord that you have created for yourself just by way of encouragement. And so hopefully you know that the Pharisees are not going to be pleased with this at all. And so it says in verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. So the Pharisees are ticked off. There's several parables that have been directed at them and they know that they're not in good shape with Jesus. And so it says that the pharisees went plotted together how they might trap jesus and what he said And so this is what they do they sent their disciples to him along with the herodians And so these clowns don't even have the courage to go to the person. They have a problem with themselves They send their disciples and it's they come to jesus and they say teacher now listen to what they say They come to him with flattery teacher We know that you are truthful and teach the way of god in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. You think that's true, or you think that's being a little, uh, they're being a little um, lying to him? Do you think they really know that? Do you think they really believe this? If they were going to trap him, they don't believe this. And so then they try to get him into a trap with verse 17. And he says, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? And so this may sound like an innocent question. And so these guys come to Jesus. Jesus, is it is it legal to give? Should we give, according to the Old Testament law, should we give Caesar tax money? And the catch here is that if they say, yes, give Caesar tax money, Did they feel like they're not being faithful to the temple and to the land of Israel? Because God gave them the land of Israel, right? He freely gave them Israel. They went in, they fought for it, they took it. And they shouldn't have to pay any taxes to any political ruler. They should only have to give their sacrifices to the temple. And so when they're giving money to Caesar and not to the temple, they're being traitors to Judaism. And if he says, no, you shouldn't give your money to Caesar, you should only give your money to the temple, now he's being a traitor to Caesar, and they can trap him either way. And so whatever Jesus says, he's stuck in a pickle. Either they're going to hand him over to the Romans to kill him, or they're going to hand him over to the Jews and write him off completely. And so look what he says. Tell us then, verse 17, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, verse 18, perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And he brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? So he's got a denarius. And he says, Who's on this coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. And so they come to him with a question that says, either or. And Jesus says, both and. You get this? Should we give money to Caesar or should we give money to the temple? And he says, you should give to God's what is God's. And you should give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You go, well, well, how in the world do I do that? Because everything that you have, every good gift that's been given to you is from God. And so everything you have is God's. And so you give everything to the Lord, and then whatever Caesar demands, you give to him that also. And so you do both. And so Paul, not Paul, but Jesus here recognizes that there are, is spiritual obedience, and there's also political obedience also. And when it comes to paying taxes, they don't contradict each other. It is possible for you to be 100% faithful to God. And then when April 15th rolls around, as much as it hurts, you give that money to Caesar also and know that you're doing the will of God in doing it. So long as you're not cheating when you do it. Amen? All right. Now, moving on. It says, so obviously they weren't happy with that either. On that day, verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees... Who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. And so you have a group of, groups of people. You have Pharisees, you have scribes, you have high priests, and then you have a group of people called Sadducees. These are all different groups of people. And the Sadducees differ theologically from the Pharisees and they don't like each other. And these Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. There's nobody's gonna be raised from the dead. Nobody has been raised from the dead. When you die, worms eat you and that's the end of you. Right? And so they come to Jesus and they're going to ask him a question um, about the law. And then Jesus is going to turn the tables. He's going to answer their question about the law. But then he's going to confront them about the resurrection also. And what you need to know about all these different groups of people is that they're all supposed to be experts in in the law, in the first five books of the Bible. And so when Jesus answers them, he often says, hey, expert, haven't you read this? And he gives them something painfully simple that they missed. So listen to this. So they came to Jesus questioning him, verse 24, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up his children for his brother. Now this Old Testament law, which we don't live by today, was given so that family names wouldn't die out. Your family name was a big deal. And so this was done so that heritages wouldn't die. that The lineages would keep going on. And so... If a man died and he and he didn't have any children, then his brother would marry his wife and raise up children for his brother, right? This is something that's totally weird to us today, but that's what God was doing in the Old Covenant. Now they say, verse 25, now there were seven brothers with us and the first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. And so what you find is that there's a, There's a lady who married the oldest brother of seven. And the oldest brother dies and doesn't have any children. So the law says that the next brother is supposed to marry her. And then the next brother and the next brother. And you go, wow, poor girl. Uh, I would hate to be this gal. And so anyways, this is the hypothetical story they've come up with. And so verse 27 says, last of all, the woman died. No wonder she died. Have you ever met a family, ladies, there were seven brothers were in the family and you'd be willing to marry every seven of the brothers. Any family with anybody in it has got somebody crazy in that family. And so just saying in-laws, last of all, the woman died. Verse 28 in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. And so get this. These Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection at all. And so they come up with a preposterous situation to catch Jesus and what he says. And so he says, okay, here's this lady. uh, Now she's married this man, this man, this man, and this man, all according to your law. And she says, okay. And then they say, okay, in the resurrection, when we get to heaven, whose husband is she going to be? Jesus says, you're mistaken. Verse 29. Not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. And you go, whew. For in the resurrection, verse 30, "...they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven." And so verse 30 does not say that when you die, you become an angel. Verse 30 says that you will be like an angel in one particular aspect, and that's that angels are not married. Angels are not given in marriage, nor do they are they taken in marriage. And so when you die and you're resurrected in heaven, you're not going to be married. And so he says, listen, gang, your question is null and void. Because she had seven husbands on earth, but in the resurrection, she's not going to have any husband because she's going to be like an angel who doesn't marry or isn't given in marriage. And then in verse 31, he says, but regarding the resurrection of the dead. So he says, hey, but since you asked about the resurrection, let me tell you this. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the li- of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And so what happened is is that when Moses gets the Ten Commandments from God, when excuse me, when Moses is called by God to lead the people out of Egypt, uh, he sees God in a burning bush. He goes over to the bush. He has this lengthy conversation with God. And at the end of the conversation, Moses says, "By the way, who do I tell the people that you are?" And he says. Tell him I am. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you remember, Moses happens in the beginning of Exodus. But back in Genesis 12, you have Abraham. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead by the time you get to Moses. And God tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says it in a way that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living and he is still their God. And he says, at this, when the crowds heard this, they were all astonished at Jesus' teaching. You go down to verse 34 and it says, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And so the, remember, these groups don't like each other, but for the sake of defeating a common enemy, they're going to work together. And so the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. And so the group of Pharisees, they get together in a little unholy huddle and the lawyer says, I got him. Teacher. Verse 37, which is the great commandment in the law? And so he says, I'm going to get him. I know the law. I'm a lawyer and I'm going to use the law to trap Jesus. Which commandment is the greatest? And he said to him, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And so when Jesus is asked which is the most important law, he gives them two. And he says every single other one of the commandments fit within a subset of those two commandments. Those are the two greatest ones. And after the first of the year, I'm going to come back and we're going to spend more time in this passage. Because... uh, I have a church mission statement that I'm going to lay out to you that deals completely with this passage. And so I'm going to give this a more thorough treatment then. And I think that you'll enjoy it uh, and like the direction that we're going to go with that. And so now they're not able to catch him. And in verse 41, it says, so they've asked Jesus three questions so far. They haven't been able to trap him in anything that he said. And in verse 41, it says, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him any other question. And so Jesus silences them. And you go, well, how in the world did that little question silence those people? Well, if you went back to Psalm 110, uh, if you're interested in a more thorough treatment of Psalm 110, last Advent or the Advent before, so one or two years ago, uh, I preached a whole message on Psalm 110. But if you flip back there real quick, it's a Psalm of David. Psalms is right tucked in the middle of your Bible. And it says, a Psalm of David. And so this is a psalm that David wrote. But what happened within the context of this psalm is that David gets a chance to overhear the Lord speaking to himself. We believe as as Protestants that the, the Lord is three in one. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you look at the words... In chapter 110, you see there's two times that the word Lord is used. The Lord says to my Lord. And so you go, well, boy, the Lord talks to himself. But you realize, if you look closely, that the typeset in your Bible is different on the first Lord than in the second Lord. Give me a head nod. Everybody looking at the Bible? Okay, good. The first Lord, the way that that's typed, every time the word Yahweh is used, that's used of the covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament, every time that word Yahweh for God is used, it's written in all uppercase letters like that with that typeset. And so this says that Yahweh says to my Lord. And so there's an inner Trinitarian conversation going in here. And so the Father is speaking to the Son when He says this. And so the Father says to the Son... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And if you keep reading more and more, you're going to find that this son of David is the Messiah. He's the king, he's a priest, and he's a victorious warrior. And Jesus, in the book of Matthew chapter 22, he self-identifies with the Lord who's in Psalm chapter 110. And this is what sets the Pharisees off is because they know who he is and he's telling them exactly who he is and he's telling them, listen, I am the victorious war warrior from Psalm 110. And so he's only reading the first verse of this psalm. But if you remember from things we've said before in Jesus's day, you didn't have chapters and verses in the scripture. If you wanted to allude to a section of scripture, you would quote the first opening verse or so. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's referencing back to Psalm 110, and he's putting the pieces together in their mind that he is way bigger than they're giving him credit for. And they hate it. And it says that no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. And so all of this leads us up to the Lord's table. Uh, In just a few minutes, the deacons are going to come, and we're going to uncover the Lord's table, and we're going to serve you. And as we come into a time of reflection, as the elements are being passed out, I want you to do some self-reflection. Because the scriptures say in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so, brothers and sisters, as the elements are being passed out, I pray that you'll do some self-reflection. I pray that you won't have any uh, unrepentant sin in your heart. And if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin, I pray that today would be the day that you would come to the Lord in faith, that you would believe in His death, burial, and resurrection, and be forgiven of anything that you've ever done in Christ. And so, as we go to the Lord in prayer, I want us to begin a spirit of reflection. And after I pray, the deacons will come forward and we'll uncover the table. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we learn more and more and more about who he is, Lord, I pray that our faith would continue to grow. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in you, that they would do that today. Lord, I pray that they would be convicted of their sins and give them all to you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's walking unrepentant to you, if there's anyone here living a life of rebellion towards you, I pray that today would be the day that they do some introspection and they come to you for who you say you are, not for who they want you to be. And Father, I pray as a body that you would forgive us where we fail you, And, Lord, I pray that we would walk in holiness and that we would continue to grow in unity as we move forward. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to uh, read a scripture, share a brief word with you, and then I'm going to ask Randy to pray for the bread. And after Randy prays for the bread, then we'll take it together. Uh, There's a fight in our culture about who Jesus is and who Jesus really is. And I want to tell you that the Lord's Supper is representative of the Lord of the Scripture. And Jesus is better than a good teacher. He's better than a prophet. Uh, He's better than anything else this world has to offer. Jesus is indeed the only begotten Son of God in whom there is eternal life. And we rest on everything that He says. And the Lord Jesus, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. It says that the Lord Jesus in the night which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it. And said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." Randy, would you pray for the bread?
1: Father, we submit ourselves to you and to your greatness, and just thank you for this awesome way of worshiping you through the Lord's Supper. Father, just as our bodies need food for physical nourishment, Lord, we take this bread for our spiritual nourishment. Lord, we just pray us that cleanse our hearts, that we prepare our hearts to be worthy to take this. Uh, Amen. Take and
0: eat. We're going to do the same as we did with the bread. I'm going to share a brief word, and then I'm going to ask uh, Brother Bob Spivey if you would pray for the cup before we take it, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, As I told the children for the children's message that uh, this is representative of the blood of Christ And for any of you that have been saved, that are taking of the Lord's supper, you know that there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ. And as I asked Ed Thompson in the beginning of the service to pray for the martyrs in America who had been killed, uh, the Book of Revelation says that heaven is full of martyrs, and it says that they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And so, if you're here as a believer in Jesus Christ and you're going to take this Lord's supper with us, there is power. In the blood of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you are walking in power in your Christian life. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 25 says, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Brother Bob.
1: Gracious all thanksgiving that you give us opportunity to remember you in such a special way. And we remember the price you paid for our sins, and the pain that you suffered. As we think of this cup, we just pray that each of us in this sanctuary will remember, remember you, and remember that you offer us the way of salvation, and that you paid the price to make that possible. May we use it to strengthen us, and may we leave this place new and changed and we will serve you and honor you in all that we do and say about that. The ghost we ask in the name of the Savior. Amen. Amen.
0: Take and drink. Well, we're going to close in a song like we always do, so if you would stand with us and sing. And then after we close in a song, I will uh, dismiss us in prayer. Just for a minute, and if you're a, if you're a guest, usually we have the, the words on our screen that is not a uh, uh, secret song that we sing. we just uh, had a, a technical uh, technical glitch and so I have the uh, from the deacons the the vote on the youth pastor it's seventy two yeses and eleven nos it needs a seventy five percent vote to pass, and we have eighty six point seven percent and so uh, we're going to move forward as a church uh, in pursuing uh, James hennigar I will Give him the call and tell him, start packing. Sound good? I appreciate you guys, and uh, I'm excited about how things went and uh, the way that the Lord is leading our church. I'm going to tell you that I love you guys and treasure you and uh, look forward to the great things that uh, the Lord has in store for us. Uh, If you are a visitor, uh, I'm going to uh, take off during the prayer and be in the back doors. I'd love to shake your hand on the way out. And uh, I'm going to ask, uh, let me see, Blunt Knowles, would you close us in prayer? Dear Lord,
1: thank you that we can come to your house nice today. And as the world has not been the best we've ever seen, Lord, we will get through this moment as we always have. Women will be strong, the well, Christians will be strong as they have gone out face face such turmoil in this last week. Lord, help us to remember, through you all things are possible. Without you, nothing is possible. In his name we pray. Amen.